last week I began this series, which I basically copied and pasted from Andy Stanley, who's like one of my favorite pastors. And this series basically has one question in mind, and the question is, why did Jesus become a man? And uh, of course, the ultimate answer is in order to die for our sins. But then the question is, well, then why did he do that at age 33? How come he didn't do that when he was 16? Or how come, he, how come he didn't wait till he was 60? Why at 33? You know, why did he even do ministry for three and a half years? Why didn't he just die? Why did he actually do ministry for three and a half years? And the answer is because there is so much more that he wanted to teach us and show us through his life. And the last time we said that the first reason was so that he could show us who God is, right? Show us who God is like. And if you want to know who God is, if you want to know God personally, then the best that you're going to get, the closest that you're going to get to knowing God and seeing God personally is by knowing Jesus. And that's what we talked about last week. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became a man to show us who God the Father is. Jesus Christ never claimed to have the best, the best explanation of God. He didn't spend his years doing ministry explaining who God was. He simply was the best explanation of God. He came to be the best explanation of God. And he spent his days speaking God's words. He spent his days representing God and doing his works and showing us who God is actually is. He showed us personally who he is. And John declared that too. Let's look at John 1, 18 together. It says, no one, ever, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. This verse, what it's saying very, very simply is that no one's ever seen God, but Jesus came to this earth to do one thing, to make God known to all of us. Right? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that awesome? The whole reason why Jesus Christ came to this earth is so that we could see God and know God and hear God and know him personally. And that's why the church spends so much time studying Jesus Christ. That's why we talk about Jesus every Sunday, every Bible study, all the time. Why? Because we want to know God personally. And the only way to do that is through the Son. And that's why we study him so much. If you want to get to know the thoughts of God and the character and the heart of God, get to know Jesus Christ. Cool? Is that cool? Is that a good summary? I gave you guys some homework last week. Did anyone do the homework? Did anyone read the book of Mark or John or any of the Gospels? Awesome. Absolutely awesome. Thank you for making me feel good. Um, but the question I wanted you to ask yourself as you went through it is, what do we learn about the Father through the Son? And that's the only question I wanted you to so You can do it anytime you want. I'm sure you'll do it tonight. <laughs> okay. Um, well, today what we're going to do is we're going to actually do that. We're going to try to discover who the Father is by studying the Son. And we're going to go through a passage together. And I swear it's awesome. The, what you realize about God simply by looking at Jesus, simply by hearing Jesus. And it's going to be absolutely awesome. Let's look at chapter 9 together. And let me give you some background about this story. You know, ja Jesus, he encounters this man who's born blind. And the disciples asked Jesus in verse 2, who sinned? Was it his parents who sinned? Or did he sin so grossly that he was born blind? Which makes no sense. How can you sin so grossly as like a, an embryo 
that you would be born blind, right? It makes no sense. But anyway, people back then had a lot of bad theology, and we're gonna, we're gonna encounter a lot of bad theology all throughout this passage. You're gonna realize that basically every single person in this passage has a lot of really messed up concepts about God and about faith, and we're gonna go through those. It's a little bit kind of fun, but we're gonna go through those. And the thing is, what you're gonna realize is we're gonna correct a lot of that stuff as well, but the only person in this passage that has really good theology is Jesus, okay? There's a lot of stuff that's kind of going wrong here. But anyway, but that's what they're asking, and you know, here's the first thing that we encounter this bad theology. Everyone back then, 2,000 years ago, believed that bad things happen to you as a result of something that you did wrong, right? It's kind of like the karma principle. Everything that comes around goes around. So if your parents did something bad, obviously your kid's going to be born blind. You do something bad, something bad's going to happen to you in the future, right? That's exactly what everyone believed. And people believe that God would actually punish his children like that. But that's bad theology because that's absolutely incorrect, okay? I know a lot of us today, we believe in that kind of stuff. And even if we don't admit it to each other, we say stuff like that all the time, right? Darn, I knew I shouldn't have gone on that ski trip. I broke my arm. It's because I missed church, <laughs> right? I mean, we say stuff like that. It's totally not true. God doesn't do that to people. But we feel like that. And we make ourselves either feel better or worse in that sense, you know? Um, we always say stuff like that. And it seems fair because if you do something wrong, and if you do something that kind of violates some, you know, some godly principle, it just makes sense that God's going to punish you. It looks almost fair. It makes logical sense. But God does not work like that. Okay? Cool? Just in case. God does not work like that. And Jesus affirms it in verse 3. He says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And what Jesus says here is absolutely amazing. He says, nobody sinned. It's nobody's fault that he was born blind, which absolutely must have shocked people who believe in the karma principle, right? And then all of a sudden, Jesus ups it up a notch, and he says, as a matter of fact, no one sinned or did anything wrong, but God made him blind. <sighs> because no one ever thinks, well, you know, God made this guy blind, right? How does that work with your theology, right? Um, and that's what he says. And he says the reason why is so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so I'm sure by now all the disciples are totally floored. But Jesus goes on. And this is where we learn our first lesson about God from the Son. Number one, God has a purpose behind our pain, Okay? God has a purpose behind our pain. Pain has a purpose in our lives. Whether it's something that's totally out of our control, like being born blind, or it's something that we encounter when we try to live for Jesus, you know, like family tragedies, or maybe broken relationships, or maybe even things like disease or cancer. God allows pain and suffering to exist within our lives so that he will display his goodness and his works through it. Do you believe that? It's tough. It's a tough principle to believe, but that's so true. I wish we could talk about this point absolutely extensively, but it's a little bit outside of the scope of our passage today. If you want to read books about this, there's tons of great, great books out there. Uh, Philip Yancey, Brennan Manning, uh, Henry Nouwen, C.S. Lewis writes books all about this particular topic, and it's so helpful right, how God uses pain in order to reveal himself to us. I know the principle sounds a little bit cruel, but it's absolutely true. God brings and allows pain to happen within our lives so that he might display his power and his goodness to us, so that he can reveal himself 
to us. One of the things I dread the most as a pastor, once again, are phone calls from church members. I don't dread them, okay? Forgive me. I said that incorrectly. But sometimes I do because when it's like, you know, 1 a.m., I dread that one. You know, because a lot of times when people call, it's because something radically bad is happening. And it's not like on the way to something radically bad happening. It's something radically bad that already happened, kind of like emergency room, police station type of radical bad that always happens. And, and you know, it's okay. Please keep those calls coming. I love receiving those calls as a pastor. You know, I just wish people would balance that out with saying, hey, Eddie, just called to say, I'm having a great day. Have a great day too. But those things never happen. So anyway, let's move on with the sermon. Anyway, but uh, I share all this because a lot of times pastors find themselves on the front line of tragedies. You know, we find ourselves in emergency rooms. We find ourselves on deathbeds. We find ourselves next to tragedies a lot. And um, it's just part of our our job. And can I tell you, one of the things that encourages me the most in my life. The moments in my life that I think I have been challenged and encouraged the most is when I see someone laying in a bed knowing that tomorrow is unsure, either from disease or from whatever it might be, um, but yet choosing to believe that God has a great plan and choosing to have faith in God in the midst of it. Right? I don't know if I was in that bed, if I would choose the same thing, if I would be just like that person. But when I see someone practice their faith and trust in God and smile and find joy that they're saved in the midst of their cancer, in the midst of their tragedy, I, it floors me. It brings me to tears and it challenges me like there's no tomorrow. My cousin, uh, she had a baby, her fourth baby, a few years ago. And one day this newborn baby, all of a sudden the ear, her, his ear started to swell. And um, so she takes this baby to the emergency room and they find out that there's like a bacterial disease that's happening inside the skull and they need emergency surgery. So she's like writing this, you know, back then, you know, we wrote like blogs, you know, we don't do that these days. I don't know. She, anyway, so I'm reading this on her online page and she's just sharing how like they had to like rush her baby into emergency cranial surgery, which is absolutely scary, you know, for a newborn baby to have an open-end surgery. And then, but she was saying as her baby was having head surgery, um, he, she realized that that was God's opportunity to do heart surgery upon her, you know, and it's, it's waiting in that emergency room, waiting for her son to come out of the surgery. That's when God really awakened her to how much she had not been living her life for God and how all of her other children she wasn't raising in the Lord and how every her whole life she was pursuing everything, even though on the outside it looked like it was Christianly, how everything really at the heart of it wasn't really for God and, and her family wasn't moving towards him. And, and so there was a huge correction that was made. And, and she said, if it wasn't for this particular you know, instance in this this circumstance, she may not have been awakened. Their whole family may not have been awakened to how valuable and awesome and beautiful God really is and how they had taken him for granted and they took their faith for granted. And so she writes, you know, it took a tragedy in order for God to reveal and awaken awaken us, to, to reveal himself to us so that we might be awakened to him. And then she spends the next few pages just praising and and worshiping him, and it's absolutely beautiful. You know, there's always purpose behind our pain, and it's so that God can be revealed through it. I recently, I recently saw a TV documentary, sports documentary, where this one couple, you know, they learned that in life, God never does anything to us. 
but God only does things for us. And this is, what, this is what they meant. They said, you know, people always ask the wrong question. You know, Christians are always asking things like, why did God give me cancer? Why did he take my mother so early, right? Why did, you know, he do this to me or that to me? Why did he do that to me? But if we truly understand that God is behind our pain, God never does anything to us. He only does things, he only does things for us. God only gives good and perfect gifts for us so that we might be like him, so that we might, so that he might make us for him, so that we might be completely his. So the next time tragedy strikes, don't ask, why did God do this to me? But seek him in praising, knowing that God did this for you so that you can be like him and so that you could be his. You know what I'm saying? God does things for us. Tragedies are opportunities for God to reveal himself to us so that we might be fully his even more. And as a Christian, if we truly believe that God is behind our pain, that's an amazing, awesome opportunity. Whatever challenges you might be going through now, trust that the God of the universe wants to be revealed through it. Trust him. Surrender yourself to him. Even if you don't understand, even if you don't know what will happen tomorrow, he wants to be known and encountered through your pain. There is a divine purpose behind it. Uh, the second point, before I state it and articulate it, I think in order to understand it, we need to read the story a little bit more. So this is what happens in the story. Jesus spits on the ground, makes mud, puts it on his eyes, tells this man, go to the pool of Siloam and wash and you'll see again. The man, you know, goes there. I'm sure people have guided him. And he washes and all of a sudden he sees. But then he comes back to his hometown and people are arguing, was that the blind guy that we just saw? Wasn't that the blind guy? Or was that the, that's not the blind guy. But then he says, no, it's me. I'm the guy that was begging. I'm the blind guy. And then they're like, how did this happen? And he goes, well, Jesus did it. And then one of the stupidest questions in history ever gets asked, you know, in verse 12, people, your teachers always tell you there's never a stupid question. This is a stupid question. You can just point to verse 12. This is a stupid question. Why? Because they asked the blind man, where did he go? <laughs> you know, how is he supposed to know? You know, he's blind. And so, you know, where is he? Where did he go? And so he says, how am I supposed to know? That's exactly what he says, right? And, and, and anyway, this miracle happens. Um, so anyway, here we go. Whenever a miracle happens, like, you know, when someone gets healed of something, or even when a woman stops her bleeding, all that kind of stuff, the Pharisees have to approve of it in order for, this, for that person to re-enter society, in order for that person to re-enter the temple. And so what should have been absolutely routine, routine because he just got healed, the miracle just happened, he should have just been re-entered into society. All of a sudden, uh, it gets really dramatic. And why does it get dramatic? Because of verse 14. Verse 14 says, Now the day on which Jesus made the mud and opened the eyes of the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Right? Jesus healed on the Sabbath day. And what should have been celebration and maybe what was celebration, all of a sudden the mood completely changes to like confrontation. Right? The Pharisees asked the man in verse 15, How did this happen? Jesus did it. You know, but the Pharisees immediately asked, but, but that man is not from God. Why isn't he from God? Because he healed on the Sabbath, right? And here's more bad theology coming your way. People believed back then that God took a day off, when one out of six or one out of seven. God completely didn't do anything on a Saturday or the Sabbath. Sabbaths back then were on a Saturday. You know, they believed God took a total day off. And if you were godly and if you followed God, you would take a day off from doing anything as well. And so 
Um, these, so the Pharisees are saying, well, he's obviously not from God because he worked on the Sabbath, so he must be human. But the people are like, well, if he's not from God and he's just human, how could he do such a divine thing like heal somebody of blindness? And so they began to hear, the people and the Pharisees all began to argue. And what's really, really funny is these seminary-trained theologians, they get so confused that they turn back to the blind man and say, will you please give us the answer, right? What do you think? It's so funny. And then he goes, well, I think he's a prophet, and then the, which means that he, he believes he's from God. And the Pharisees absolutely hate that answer because, you know, he's basically saying that Jesus is from God. And so you know what the Pharisees do? They, they rebuke him and they tell him to be quiet. And then they say, you need to worship God because obviously Jesus is a sinner and you're blind to that. But then the man says in verse 25, I don't know whether Jesus is a sinner or not, but what I do know is that I was blind, but now I see. Here we go. What is the real struggle that's happening when we take a step back? This is what's happening. The struggle is that these Pharisees, they have this absolute confidence in their view of God. You know, God does this. God does not do this, right? They have this very sophisticated understanding of who God is and how he operates. And when they encounter something that doesn't quite fit into their theological understanding of who God is, all of a sudden they're critical towards it and they reject it. Right? But the problem in this particular case is that this man was shown mercy. And mercy, even the Old Testament, especially in the Old Testament, is valued very highly. It is a huge godly characteristic. Right? And this is the difficulty that the Pharisees find so confronting. Because mercy is so godly. Healing is godly. Right? Worship is godly. But the Pharisees don't know how to reconcile this. Because even though God is like that, but the thing is, God doesn't do that on the Sabbath. Right? And so they're in absolute conflict. But the Pharisees don't relent. So they're like, okay, well, let's just, you know, let's ask him again. So they ask the man again, you know, what do you, what do you really think? I know I just told you to rebuke you. I know we just rebuked you and told you to go home, but what do you really think? And he's like, well, I told you. How many times do I have to tell you? You're asking me like three, four times. And all of a sudden it dawns on this blind man, oh, I get it. The reason why you're struggling so much is because you're interested in becoming one of his disciples, aren't you? And that's what he says. And then all of a sudden, that ticks off the Pharisees like there's no tomorrow. And they say, you, in verse 20, in 28, they say, look, it's obvious you follow him, but we follow Moses. And what they, what they mean by that is very, very simple. They say, we know God because God revealed himself to Moses. And because we're followers of Moses and Moses knew God, we therefore know God just as well as Moses did. Right? You might follow that Jesus character, but we follow the real God, the God of the Old Testament. And when we look at Jesus, he doesn't fit into the Moses mold, so therefore he must not be of God. And then all of a sudden, in verse 30, this is what he says. He says, the man replies, wow, that's remarkable. You don't know where Jesus comes from, yet he opened my eyes. Right? We know that God does not listen to sinners, bad theology once again. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him, bad theology. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Okay, here we go. What is he saying? He's saying this. He's like, you guys are just hilarious, you teachers of God, right? Because look at me. This is what he's saying. Look at me. Am I not proof enough that Jesus comes from God? Isn't that something every Christian should be able to say? Or do, you have, do you have the balls to say that to your, to your people? Look at me. Look at my life. Look how much God changed me. Am I not proof 
that Jesus is from God? Can you say that to one another? That's huge, isn't it? But we should be able to say that. Only God can do what, look, what happened to me. Only God can do that, right? And the thing is, here's what's, here's what's ridiculous about you teachers. Somewhere in your heart and you're in your mind, you know that's true. Only God can do this. So what are you struggling about, right? I know what you see. And I know what just happened doesn't fit into your, any of your theological understandings about who God is, right? I know you learned none of this stuff from Sarah and Seminary. I know you didn't learn it from Jita. You know, I know you didn't learn it from any of the children's ministers, any of your previous pastors. But the thing is this, how can something like this happen, right? How can someone, how can you conclude that this guy is evil when the fruit of it and the result of it is that I fear God now, all I want to do is worship God, and I just want to have every, everyone else love of God as well. How, how can someone evil make that happen? Oh my God, can we just broaden our thinking a little bit? Hello? Can we just open up our minds a little bit? Hello? Right? Maybe God is bigger than what you think. Maybe God is a little bit more merciful than what you think. Just because you cannot see nor understand what fits into, you know, what doesn't fit into your theological, like, theological box, is that really God who is deficient? Or is it really your understanding of God which is Deficient. That's what he's saying in those three verses. <laughs> you know, um, why do you automatically condemn and judge that which you can't understand? And so the Pharisees, they're absolutely, absolutely angry by now. And so they say, how dare you lecture us in verse 34? You now, you've convinced us that you're a sinner through and through. And then what do they do? They cast him out of Jewish society forever. Right? Isn't that huge? What's the second point that we learn from Jesus? God extends mercy beyond our theology. Okay? Um, you know, even our theological system, it doesn't matter what theological system you grew up with. You know, we always love putting caps and bookends, and we always like making things absolutely clear. We like saying, this is, this is right, this is wrong. We talked about that last week a little bit. But even in, if we're honest with ourselves, even in our particular personal practice of Christianity, um, there are people, I think, that we would categorize as people who are worthy of God's mercy and maybe people who aren't. Do you know what I'm talking about? Maybe it's people we don't like. Maybe it's people who hurt us. Maybe people who radically hurt our families. People who destroyed things within our lives. Maybe it's people who commit heinous crimes or continue to commit heinous crimes in this world. Some of, there's a little part of us that we're like, oh, man. We don't want that guy to be saved. You know, we just want that guy to get punished. You know, that guy deserves hell. You know, that guy doesn't deserve mercy whatsoever. And God, I'm, having, I'm actually going to pray that he doesn't get it. You know, there's some people, we're evil. We would never pray like that. I know none of us would. But you know what I'm talking about? There's a part of our hearts that we, if we don't, really don't like somebody, we're, we kind of feel like that. You know? None of you guys are like <laughs> reacting. But Jesus comes along and he shows us that God's mercy is much bigger than anyone's theological system or understanding, right? As a matter of fact, mercy, if you think about it, should inform our theological understanding, you know? When our theology becomes an obstacle to mercy practiced towards other human beings of any background, that's when we need to change our theology, right? There's something absolutely wrong with your understanding of God if your belief in God allows you or gives you permission to mistreat another human being for any reason. 
you know what I'm saying? It just it doesn't make sense. Whether that person's an enemy, that person could be a terrorist, that person could be the most offensive Christian inside the church. These people are all children of God. They're God's children. And if there's something inside you that says it's okay, I don't really have to love that person like I do myself. I don't really have to love my neighbor as I would myself because obviously that guy believes in God differently. That guy practices his faith differently. That guy does some really messed up stuff. If that's the reason why, then there's something absolutely wrong with your understanding of God and especially your understanding of his mercy. Do you guys get this? Yes? Can you imagine if Christians in Australia got this one right. And the reason why I say this is because I believe Christians in Australia are not good at this. Christians in Australia, for some reason, my experience with Christians in Australia, they judge quickly. They, you know, they judge everybody quickly. They separate. They delineate. They do a lot of stuff you know, so quickly. But if, can you imagine if Christians in Australia got this one right in the past like 50 to 70 years? I think our nation would be completely different. I think our, the whole spiritual landscape, not only of our nation, but especially in Sydney, I think would be radic- radically, radically different. Look, the reality is that people will always have their differences with what we believe. What we believe is, actu- is absolutely narrow. We believe that there's only one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ. There's only one way people can be saved, and that is through Jesus Christ alone. So, you know, people should be saying things like, oh, those Christians, they're so, like, full of themselves. They think there's only one way to heaven. They're so, like, offensive. They believe Jesus is the only way. But damn, look at their mercy. They love everybody. They love and they're generous to everybody. Why isn't that our reputation? Do you know what I'm saying? You know what the answer is? It's because Christians don't spend their time looking at Jesus. That's it. If we spent more time studying Jesus and wanting to become like Jesus, we would be like Jesus more. Don't you think? So when you think about your faith, what's your faith about? Where do you get your lessons from? Where do you get, you know, what Christianity and faith is supposed to look like? Where do you get those answers from? Is it from the Son? who shows us the Father, who teaches us what's on the Father's heart and how to live the word. And we see and witness the works of the Father through him. Is Jesus Christ who you study to learn about what Christianity is about and to be a Christian? We don't a lot. And that's why we don't live this stuff out. But if we did and we encountered this all the time, we'd actually look like him. You know what I'm saying? Jesus Christ, if you read your gospel, if you read Mark or John, You realize, who does he hang out with the most outside of his disciples? Tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners. He hung around with all the people that society already wrote off as people who don't deserve mercy. That's how they actually classified them. And that's who Jesus hung out with the most. And if we studied him and wanted to become like him, there's a part of me that's like, most churches should be doing that a little bit more too, don't you think? If we we really studied him, if we really took him as the foundation of what we're supposed to look like, Don't you think churches should look like that more? Don't you think Christians would be doing that a lot more? But what do we do? Something to think about, isn't it? If Jesus hung out with people all the time, with people who society already already classified as people who are unworthy or outside the bounds of receiving the mercy of God, then there's a part of me that believes that Christians should have that. We 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 should have that within our lives as well. Something to think about. Something to move towards. 
Let's at least, uh, from today, stop doing what the Pharisees did, judging people, dismissing people, mistreating people, simply because they believe differently or practice differently. Why? Because God's mercy extends beyond our theology. Last thing we, want, we learn from the Father through the Son is this. God takes personal interest in individual people. God cares for people individually. Last week we said that uh, Jesus came to show the works of God. God does his work through Jesus Christ. And what we find over and over again is that God is constantly wanting to minister to people individually. Did you ever notice that when you study uh, Jesus Christ? Or, or before we get there, I'll prove that in a second. But I know we grew up in church and we sing a lot of songs that say all this stuff. But did you ever really wonder this to yourself? Does God really know me by name? Or is that just a good song that we sing? <laughs> right? Does God really know? I mean, does God actually listen to my prayers? If God's listening to millions of prayers, does he actually hear mine? I mean, does he really pay attention to me? Does he really know me personally? I know I was taught in Sunday school that he sees my heart, he sees my mind, he knows how I feel, all those things. But does he really care personally? Did you ever ask yourself those questions? Right? Am I really that valuable to God? Or is that just something that the pastor says so that I'll believe in Jesus and get on board with church? You know, one of the most powerful things about Jesus' ministry, if you ever read Mark, John, Luke, Matthew, Mark, whatever, is that what you'll notice is that Jesus hangs out with a lot of people personally. That's like his whole ministry, you know? And especially when he wants to move people towards God, he especially hangs out with them personally, right? If people need healing, you know what he does? He heals them one by one. There was this one centurion who comes to Jesus Christ and says, oh, I have a child way in this other city, you know, and who needs healing. And then what does Jesus, you know, the first thing Jesus said to that certain centurion was, let me come to your house. Do you know how ridiculous that statement is? Right? Your, your whole family's in, like in Rome. But I'm willing to travel all the way there just to heal your kid personally. Right? You probably, you probably, you know, we read past stuff like that. But it's so true. You know, there, we read about, we never heal about Jesus. You know, okay, there's all these crowds. They're always around Jesus, wanting to get healed. But does Jesus do one of these things? You know, never. Never. Do you know what the text always says? Jesus stayed into the night and into the morning, healing people individually, one by one. When he could have just did the thing. But he doesn't. You know what I'm saying? And the reason why is because God cares about individuals. Right? Jesus never needed to go to any person, one person at a time. But he always chose to. Why? Because God takes a personal interest in individuals. I love verse 35. And if you just once again read past it, you might miss it. Verse 35 says, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Did you guys catch it? The absolutely piece of gold in that verse, right? Jesus heard that this man got cast out of Jewish society, out of the temple, out of everything, fellowship, because he testified to Jesus Christ. So what did he do? The moment that Jesus heard that this man got cast out, he dropped everything and went on a search for this man, right? He stopped ministry in order to go search for this one man. And when he finds him, right, what does he do, right? Uh, 
he, you know, he, he asked him, you know, this, this question. But the thing is, what you have to realize, and this is, I want to highlight something before I move on to the question. Jesus, the moment he discovered that this man was cast out, he dropped everything and went in search for him. It reminds me of that story of the lost child or the lost son or the lost coin, the lost sheep. People who would drop everything to find this one person, right? And why, once again, to stress that individuals matter to God. But the reason why he did it is because what you have to realize about Jesus Christ, which shows us who the Father is, so what you have to realize about God is God is not satisfied just to heal us. God is not satisfied just to make us, quote unquote, whole in in the ways that we believe we need to be whole. God will stick with us. Why? Because he cares about us personally. Why? Because what he's interested in is making us a worshiper, making us someone who knows the Father personally. That was always his goal, right? And that's what he wanted. And that's why he had to search out this man to make sure that this man was loved, supported, and that he knew that the Father was completely behind him. And so because of that, we can know, each one of us, each one of us can be confident that God cares about each one of us in the exact same way. It's not enough for God to heal you. It's not enough for you to be, for you to just know God once, one and done. It's not. He wants you to know that he cares about every prayer. He cares about every need. He cares about every worry that you have upon your heart. He knows you by name and he thinks about you. Jesus Christ sitting at the right hand of God praying for you. Why? Because he cares about you individually. He cares that you know him. And he cares that you are loved by him and that you know that you are loved by him. And he cares so much about you that he realizes that the greatest thing for your life is for you to love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and being as well. So he will continually work within your life personally through tragedy, pains, whatever it might be, circumstances within your life so that you, he might reveal himself to you more so that you can always be continually awakened to him and become everything that you were created to be, everything that you were saved to be because you are individually loved by God. This story proves it. You can't learn stuff like that from interpreting your circumstances. You can't learn stuff like that from nature. You can't learn stuff like that by looking within yourself or even in this particular religious system. You know, you can only learn that when you hang out with Jesus and study that from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ became a man not only so that he could show us who the Father is, but so that we could confidently love God and be loved individually by the Father as well. Why? Because God takes personal interest in individual people. Jesus proves it. Isn't that amazing? Three lessons that we learn from the Father. We learn who the Father is through the Son, right? No matter, it's just amazing. That's why you got to study Jesus, okay? Will you please? Will you please? I know, you know, different church, I've, I've been on the Reform side, now I'm on the Pentecostal side. We always pursue different things like the Holy Spirit, theology, whatever, whatever, whatever. But can you just pursue Jesus, please? Right? You can, those are like secondary, tertiary issues, in my opinion. But the Bible and who Jesus is, is the main thing. Get all of your knowledge from God, from Jesus. Okay? Can we do that a little bit more? Here we go. Let's bring this to a close. No matter where you might be in your journey with God, there comes a time where I think you got to make a decision. You know, am I really going to be in? Am I really going to follow Jesus Christ? Is Jesus Christ just the guy I learned about at Sunday school, who I know is good, but it's not like I'm going to really live for him. But there comes a time in every person's life where you need to look at the evidence, look at the stories, believe, choose whether it's true or not, and if you believe it is, to actually put your faith in Jesus 
Christ. Many times we don't do that because we're the one that's blind, right? And because we don't see clearly. But not only is the person of Jesus Christ irrefutable, but so is the evidence of God in the people that you're sitting with. When you look at their lives, you can tell that Jesus is real because those lives have been changed. Jesus loves you, and he became a man so that you could know God personally. His mercy extends way beyond anything that you may have done in your past. His mercy extends way beyond your understanding of God and religion, which means that you can be confident that his love for you is boundless and unlimited. Right? And even in our pain, and especially maybe in particularly in light of our pain, God has been using all that to draw you to him so that he might reveal himself to you. Jesus became a man to show us that. And I hope that truth gives you reason enough to trust him. Let's pray. Today, I want to invite you to take a step of faith. And only if you feel convicted, if you feel convinced. You know, I want to invite you to trust Jesus Christ for your life and for your salvation, right? I know for a lot of us who might be on the, that search, maybe you're on this search. Maybe you're on this quest to find all the answers. Maybe you kind of need all the answers before you. But the, real, the reality is, you know, no matter how many answers you gather, it's never going to be enough for you to trust in Jesus. I love what this man says. He says, you know, I don't have any of the answers. I can't ask, answer any of your questions. But what I do know for sure is what Jesus did in me. I was blind yesterday, but today I see. And what he's basically saying is, I may not have the answers about Jesus, but I know Jesus enough that he loves me, he cares for me, and he wants to change my life and to make me his and if that's enough for you, I'm going to ask you to surrender your life to Jesus. He died for your sins, and he loves you, and he wants you to be his forever, right? And he's totally worth surrendering your life for. So if you would like to surrender your life to live for Jesus today, will you do that? Is it too, is it too much for me to ask you to raise your hand? You know, if you'd like to surrender your life to Jesus, will you raise your hand? For the rest of us, will you just trust in Jesus with your life? Whatever's happening within your life, will you trust in him? Will you give yourself to him? And will you allow him to awaken you to how much he truly does love you and wants to work in your life? Let's just spend a minute or two in prayer.
revealing yourself to us through Jesus. Lord, I pray for everyone in this room, and I pray, God, that you'll really awaken all of us. So that everything within our lives would point our hearts, our minds, and our eyes to you. God, help us just to see you and to know you. And Father, we thank you for Jesus so that we can study him and hear him and truly learn about who you are. And Father, we pray as we study Christ, Lord, draw us to you so that we might truly be close to you, so that we might know you personally, so we might love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and being, so that what we called Christianity yesterday might be our passion tomorrow. So that the person of Jesus that we might have studied yesterday might be our treasure tomorrow. And the life that we lived for yesterday might be totally transformed into everything that you have in store for us tomorrow. God, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.